finding your seat, I'd like to encourage you. I know that many are traveling for vacations this summer, but they want to keep up with what's happening in this series. There's two easy ways to do that. Connection Point has a YouTube channel. If you simply go to YouTube and search for CPC TV, you will find all of the messages online there. You could also go to our church website, and there's a link to that that would direct you straight there at connectionpointchurch.org. And the other thing that we have set up, uh, Andrew and the creative arts team, is they set up an iTunes podcast. So if you go to iTunes and search for Connection Point Podcast, you can find us there as well. That would help you save on some media, some uh, as you don't have to stream the video on your phone and you can just listen by way of podcast. So if you want to keep up with what we're doing here at church, and especially in the summer series, an easy way to do that is at YouTube and iTunes Podcast. So I just want to encourage you to do that. New believers in the Middle East and North Africa and in communist countries, they were being interviewed and asked what they had learned from Western Christians. Their overwhelming response? Fear. That when the going got tough, oftentimes Westerners evacuated hard places, leaving new believers behind. But the question is, what does the church, as we examine the words of Jesus... What is his church called to? You know, so often Westerners value safety and security, and they put that above all else. But as we look at Scripture, and especially the passage this morning, I want to discern and to discover what is it that Jesus calls the church to. So we're in a series on the resistance, the church, and its mission, and we're looking at taking the church back to Jesus so that we can move forward and on with God. That's our goal. We want him to build this church. It is his. He is our senior pastor. We simply all serve him. And so to do this, what we're doing is examining passages of Scripture where Jesus talks about the church. And so last week, we started uh, with John on the island of Patmos. It's off the coast of modern-day Turkey, a small island, where the risen Jesus provides seven letters to the churches in modern-day Asia, in modern-day Turkey. And, and so what we find last week is we went from the island of Patmos, where Jesus gets his visionary message, John does from Jesus, and we travel on boat to Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, a, a coastal town. It's an important city where Paul ministered for over two years, widely spreading the message of Jesus everywhere. The letter to this city showed us that the church is called to love. And so what we find here for the Ephesian Christians is that they were commended for their doctrine, for their commitment to the truth of the gospel, but they were challenged to return to their love of God and neighbor. From 1 John 4, here's what we discovered, that to love like God is a visible expression of him to the world. Shalise shared that well in the video this morning. Well, last week, in response to the message, as we talked about the International Friendship Program at Purdue, we had 30 families sign up to host international students. Praise the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? It is amazing that we live in a community that by displaying love to our neighbors, we are displaying love unto the world. We have to take that opportunity. We can't take it for granted. Well, now this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the second letter, the letter to the church in Smyrna. So if you have your Bibles... And I hope you do. We like to make sure that everybody's got a Bible. I would invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2 this morning. So last week we talked about Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7. Now we're just carrying on in the book. And we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. So I also do invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. I want to thank the team that 
put in such great effort in setting up tables and chairs that we still had aisles. That's a challenge. <laughs> they did a wonderful job. So as we read these verses, Revelation 2, 8 through 11, this message for Smyrna is very important for our church today. So chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Spanish first. Yes. <laughs> Escribe al ángel de la iglesia de Smyrna. Esto dice el primero y el último, el que murió volvió a vivir. Conozco tu sufrimiento y tu pobreza, sin embargo, eres rico. Sé cómo te calumnian los que dicen que eres ser judío, pero que en realidad no son más que sinagogas de Satanás. No tengas miedo de lo que estás por sufrir. Te advierto que algunos de ustedes el diablo los meterá en la cárcel para ponerlos a prueba y sufrirán persecución durante diez días. Sé fiel hasta la muerte. Yo te daré la corona de la vida. El que tenga oídos, que oiga lo que el Espíritu dice a la iglesia. El que salga vencedor no sufrirá daño alguno de la segunda muerte. English. English. Sorry. And the angels of the, of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slender of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into the prison that you may be tested. And for, them, for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto that, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the, the Spirit say to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Amen. These are the very words of God. You may be seated. Thank you for reading in both Spanish and English. Isn't it wonderful we live in a church that can be of the nations? We have the picture in eternity that we will all one day, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, be around the throne praising our Savior. Isn't it beautiful that we can experience heaven on earth by having nations in our church? May we have heaven here. So from Ephesus, we're now going to head approximately 40 miles north along the coast to the harbor town of Smyrna, the site of the second letter that we just read. After Paul left Ephesus, following the riot, we saw the picture last week of that large stadium where a riot took place and Paul leaves. It's possible that he followed the coastal road north through Smyrna. This is in Acts 20. The city was in a great location, and today Izmir the third most populous city in Turkey, remains an important harbor town. We stayed in Izmir when we were doing our traveling around to the seven sites of the churches. It's a beautiful city today. Smyrna was a proud and beautiful with a world-class stadium, library, and public theater. It's been fun to go back to these pictures and to see especially Nate and Haley because um, now they're huge, you know, a couple years later. So we've enjoyed it. So in this city, it could have likely been the home of the poet Homer. The city had temples to various gods and was one of the first places in Asia to establish a cult to Rome, building a shrine to the goddess Roma. 
The city maintained a strong allegiance to Rome and was one of the great centers of Caesar worship. With the threat of death for non-compliance, worshiping the emperor was compulsory for every Roman citizen. He didn't have a choice. Citizens were required to burn incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And upon doing so, they received a certificate to verify they fulfilled the annual requirement. And then each individual was free to worship whatever deity he or she liked. So think about this for a moment. To this end, pledging allegiance to Caesar was much more about political loyalty than religious adherence. So all the Christians, if they wanted to, all they really had to do was to burn that pinch of incense and say Caesar is Lord, receive their certificate, and go on their way and worship as they pleased. But this is precisely what the Christians, in particular in Smyrna, they would not do. They would give no man the name of Lord. That name they would keep for Jesus and Jesus alone. They would not even formally conform. Uncompromisingly, the Christians refused to go through the forms of Caesar worship. And therefore, the Christians were outlaws and liable to persecution at any time. You know, whenever a Roman ruler died, they were considered divinity. The emperors made the same claims to deity as Christ, calling themselves Lord, Savior, Creator, and God. Domitian, the Roman ruler of the time, he was unique. He actually claimed divinity while he was still alive. He made imperial worship obligatory, exempting only the Jews. Since the Jews had an ancient religion and were formerly independent allies of Rome, they received the free exercise of their religion. So initially, the Romans' authorities, they made no distinction between Christianity and Judaism, and Christians shared the same legal protection as the Jews. But when a synagogue expelled Christians for following Jesus, Christians lost exemption from Caesar worship, and they could be executed for not claiming Caesar as Lord. This is why Jesus referred to the Jews as the synagogue of Satan, because once Christians became followers, they were expelled, and then they could be persecuted. So you understand the reading there. Becoming a Christian in Smyrna meant a person took their own life into their hands. Being a Christian was dangerous. The church in Smyrna was a community of heroes. Some of the most famous martyrs in church history, they occurred in Smyrna. Tradition holds that Polycarp, an early church leader, brought to faith by John, was instructed to worship Caesar, but he refused. Telling his persecutors, 80 and 6 years have I served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? An angry mom grabbed him and placed him on a stake to burn. It is well, said Polycarp. I fear not the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. Why do you delay? Come, do your will. And as the flames of the fire began to burn, he prayed, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may receive a portion in the number of martyrs in the cup of Christ. And when the flames were miraculously prevented from consuming his body, his executioner ordered him stabbed with the dagger. The church in Smyrna, it was unique. It was one of two churches, as we go through these letters to the churches of Revelation, that received commendation without condemnation. They were praised only and never scolded. They were encouraged and not corrected. Jesus commended them for following him amidst hardship. They were materially poor but spiritually rich. I love that phrase. Too often, especially in a Western context, we think that if we're blessed by God, then we're materially blessed. It's not true. What Jesus says here right in the scripture, he says, look, you can have nothing and yet have everything in me. 
He tells this church, do not fear what you're about to suffer. This letter explains the church is called to suffer. Every Sunday morning, I come in here early and just pray, ask the Spirit to lead and have his way in our service. And this morning in particular, I prayed that you would accept this message today. Because what I'm about to share, it's not a popular biblical truth. But as you read the New Testament, it's all over it. It's an obvious teaching, a message regarding our need to embrace suffering. Paul talks about some of his hardships in 2 Corinthians. Here's what he shares. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." You see, many would say that when you follow Jesus, everything becomes easy. You will live a blessed life by American standards and no longer face hardship. But that's not what Jesus taught. In fact, he taught the opposite. Every time someone said they wanted to follow him, now Jesus said to the disciples, follow me. But when somebody approached him and said, I'd like to follow you, here's what Jesus says. Are you sure? I have, I have nowhere to rest my head. Foxes and birds do, but... I don't. It's likely that you're going to have to stand up to family members who don't agree with your decision. Your family may be divided. You'll have to daily deny yourself, pick up a cross, an instrument of torture, and follow me. This is how Jesus went around speaking. The disciples at some point asked him, Jesus, could you stop talking this way? (laughs) Read it. It's in there. Now, don't get me wrong. Following Jesus is incredible, but it's not easy. He's a treasure hidden in a field worth giving everything up for. If there's one book I could encourage you to read this summer, and sometimes people come, and (laughs) I think people have stopped coming to ask me about books to read, because I usually hand them a dozen. But if there's one I could encourage you, I know we're walking through the resistance, uh, trying to get together on what Jesus expects of his church, but I'd recommend the book. It's called The Insanity of God. It's written by a cross-cultural worker, Nick Ripkin who is given the opportunity to visit with believers in difficult locations to discover how their faith survived, how it thrived in these environments. The Ripkins know that following Jesus in so many ways actually increases suffering instead of lessening it. But they also know that Jesus is better than all the pleasures, possessions, and pursuits of this world put together. Facing hardship while following Jesus is worth it in the end. You become a person of endurance and character with profound hope for the future. But serving Jesus in this life can be difficult. So I took time to define some connection point family expectations a couple of months back. To love Jesus and others, to live in the joy of the Lord, to run the race well. If you do those things, you have done well in Jesus' name. Because we need to shine Jesus everywhere we go. And we do that by living in his joy, running his race, and loving him and others. And to do that, we must become okay with suffering. In fact, we must learn to rejoice in suffering. 
Paul writes about the value of suffering in Romans chapter 5. Here's what he says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Three things I'd like to share. The first is this, that you can rejoice while suffering, because suffering produces endurance. One of the places Nick Ripken visited was the former USSR. He wanted to learn what it had been like to follow Jesus under communist rule. During his visit, he had opportunity to meet a man named Dimitri, who was in prison for 17 years for holding church in his house. Dimitri had been born and raised in a believing family. His parents took him to church as a child. But over the decades, communism slowly destroyed most of the churches and places of worship. Many pastors were imprisoned or killed. And by the time he was grown, the nearest remaining church building was a three-day walk away. It was impossible for his family to attend church more than once or twice a year. So one day, Dimitri told his wife, You'll probably think that I'm insane. I know that I have no religious training whatsoever, but I'm concerned that our sons are growing up without learning about Jesus. This may sound like a crazy idea, but what would you think if one night a week we gathered the boys together so I could read a Bible story and try to give them a little of the training they are missing because we no longer have a real church? What Dimitri didn't know is his wife had been praying for years that he would do exactly that. He started teaching his family one night a week, reading from the old family Bible. Then he would try to explain what he had just read so that his children could understand. Eventually, the boys started asking for more. Papa, can we sing these songs that they sing when we go to the real church? So Dimitri and his wife taught them the traditional songs of their faith. Now, nothing can be hidden for long in small villages. Houses are close together and windows are often open. Neighbors began noticing what was going on with Dimitri's family. Some of them asked if they could come and listen to the Bible stories and sing the familiar songs. Initially, Dimitri protested that he was not trained to do this. He wasn't a minister, but his excuse didn't seem to dissuade his neighbors. And a small group began gathering to share in the reading and telling and discussing of Bible stories and to sing and to pray together. Well, by the time the little group grew to 25 people, the authorities had noticed. Local party officials came to see Dimitri. They threatened him physically and accused him of starting an illegal church. Dimitri argued, how can you say that? I have no religious training. I am not a pastor. This is not a church building. We're just a group of family and friends getting together. All we're doing is reading and talking about the Bible, singing, praying, and sometimes sharing money with those in need. How can you call that a church? <laughs> Love that. And in case you don't know, that's what we're doing this morning. A group of family and friends, reading the Bible, singing, praying. I love it. So the communist official told Dimitri, we don't care what you call it, but this looks like a church to us. And if you don't stop it, bad things are going to happen. When the group grew to 50 people, the authorities made good on their threats. Dimitri was fired from his factory job, his wife lost her teaching position, and their boys were expelled from school. When the number of people grew to 75... There was no place for everyone to sit. Villagers stood shoulder to shoulder, cheek to cheek inside the house. They pressed in around the windows outside the house to hear what Dimitri had to say. And then one night as Dimitri spoke, 
The door to his house suddenly violently burst open. An officer and soldiers pushed through the crowd. The officer grabbed Dimitri by the shirt, slapped him back and forth across the face, slammed him against the wall, and said in a cold voice, We have warned you. We have warned you. We have warned you. I warn you to stop this nonsense, or this is the least that's going to happen to you. You know, when Dimitri lost his job, his wife lost her job, and the boys were expelled from school, they could have gone to the authorities, let them know they would no longer hold the house church meetings to end their suffering. That's not what they did. They pressed on, continued to share the story of Jesus, and endured. When you're facing hardships at work because you follow Jesus, when your family relationships are strained because Jesus is Lord of your life, when you're passed over for promotions because of your faith, rejoice. God is teaching you endurance, something every follower of Christ must develop in their life to run the race well. You can rejoice while suffering because suffering produces endurance. And not only that, but you can rejoice while suffering because endurance produces character. When the officer who slapped Dimitri in the face pushed his way back toward the door, a small grandmother took her life in her hand, stepped out of the anonymity of that worshiping community, and waved a finger in the officer's face. Sounding like an Old Testament prophet, she declared, You have laid hands on a man of God, and you will not survive. That was a Tuesday. And on Thursday, that officer dropped dead of a heart attack. As you could imagine, the fear of God swept through that community. At the next house church service, more than 150 people showed up. The authorities couldn't let this continue, so Dimitri went to jail. He was moved 1,000 kilometers away from his family and locked in prison. Confined to a small room, Dimitri was the only believer among 1,500 hardened criminals. Dimitri claimed that his isolation from the body of Christ was more difficult than the physical torture. But Dimitri found great strength in the face of torture by engaging in two important spiritual habits. For 17 years in prison, every morning at daybreak, Dimitri would stand at attention by his bed. He would raise his arms in praise to God and then sing to Jesus. I'd like to do that this morning. Would you mind to stand where you're at? To sing a familiar song. If you've been in the church, it'll be familiar. If not, it's an easy song to sing. What could we sing this morning? Just raise your hands to the Lord. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Thank you for singing this morning. Every morning, he would sing. The other prisoners laughed, cursed, jeered, banged metal cups against the iron bars in angry protest. They threw food and human waste to try to shut him up and extinguish the only true light shining in that dark place every morning at dawn. The other thing he did was find a a scrap of paper to write scripture on, and post it on a pillar in his cell. Whenever one of his jailers spotted a piece of paper on the pillar, he would come into his cell, take it down, read it, beat Dimitri severely, and threaten him with death. But Dimitri 
refused to stop these two disciplines. Every day he rose at dawn to sing his song, and every time he found a scrap of paper, he filled it with scripture and praise. This went on year after year. His guards tried to make him stop. The authorities did terrible things to his family. Demetri refused to let go of Jesus and refused to stop telling the good news of Jesus to his family and neighbors. He was imprisoned, and his endurance led to character. When hard times come, you must know that Jesus is with you. Your job is to endure, to not give up. When coworkers mock you, when family turns their back on you, when people treat you poorly, your job is to endure by living in the joy of the Lord. And so that character might be developed in your life. You can rejoice while suffering because endurance produces character. And not only that, but you can rejoice while suffering because character produces hope. At one point, Dimitri's guards led him to believe that his wife had been murdered and that his children had been taken by the state. Dimitri's resolve finally broke. He told God that he could not take it anymore. He admitted to his guards, You win. I will sign any confession that you want me to sign. I must get out of here to find out where my children are. They told Dimitri, We will prepare your confession tonight, and then you will sign it tomorrow. Then you will be free to go. After all those years, the only thing he had to do was sign his name on a document saying that he was not a believer in Jesus and that he was a paid agent of the Western governments trying to destroy the USSR. Once he put his signature on that dotted line, he would be free to go. That very night, Dimitri sat on his jail cell bed. He was in deep despair, grieving the fact that he had given up. And at that same moment, a thousand kilometers away, his family, Dimitri's wife, his children who were growing up without him, and his brother. They sensed through the Holy Spirit the despair of this man in prison. His loved ones gathered around and knelt in a circle and began to pray out loud for him. Miraculously, the Holy Spirit of the living God allowed Dimitri to hear the voices of his loved ones as they prayed. You can imagine what that did for Dimitri. The next morning, when the guards marched into his cell with the documents, Dimitri's back was straight, his shoulders were squared, and there was strength on his face and in his eyes. He looked at his captors and declared, I'm not signing anything. The guards were upset, demanded to know what happened. Dimitri smiled and told them, In the night, God let me hear the voices of my wife and children and my brother praying for me. You lied to me. I now know that my wife is alive and physically well. I know that my sons are with her. I also know that, you are, that they are still in Christ, so I'm not signing anything. His persecutors continued to discourage and try to silence him. Dimitri remained faithful. He was overwhelmed one day as he walked through the yard to see a special gift that he considered from God's hand, a, a whole sheet of paper and a pencil laid beside it. So Dimitri rushed back to his jail cell, wrote every scripture reference, every Bible verse, every story, and every song he could recall. He filled both sides of the paper with as much of the Bible as he could. He reached up and stuck the entire sheet on that wet concrete pillar. And of course, his jailer saw it, he was beaten and punished, and now threatened with execution. Being dragged from his cell, as he was dragged down the corridor in the center of the prison, the strangest thing happened. Before they reached the door leading to the courtyard, before stepping out into the place of execution, 1,500 hardened criminals, they stood at attention by their beds. They raised their hands. 
and saying, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, for the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. For Dimitri, this was the greatest choir in all of human history. 1,500 hardened criminals raised their arms and began to sing the song that they had heard Dimitri sing every morning all those years. Dimitri's jailers instantly released their hold on his arms and stepped away from him in terror. (laughs) One of them demanded to know, who are you? Dimitri straightened his back and stood as tall and as proud as he could and responded, I am a son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. The guards returned him to his cell. They didn't want anything to do with killing this man. Sometime later, Dimitri was released and and returned to his family. Suffering produced endurance. Endurance produced character, and character produced hope. Suffering tests what you have put your hope in. Some of you have put your hope in money, in health, your marriage, your kids, your house, and in, in your retirement. And then suffering comes along and it burns up all your money. It ruins your health. It puts your marriage in a tailspin. You get kicked out of your house. You burn through your retirement. And at the end of that fire, you're now hoping in God, and your faith has become real. The first threat to your eternal hope is dealt with through your sufferings. Suffering is a gift to burn up false hopes, to knock all the props out from under you except God, the source of real hope. Hope can be fake, but God in his love wants your hope placed in what's real, hoping in him. When hardship comes, it is vital to embrace and even rejoice in suffering in order to learn endurance, build character, and establish genuine hope. This teaching really is important for our church. As you rejoice in suffering, we become unstoppable as a church. Peter relates, So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had, and be ready to suffer too. In other words, you become bulletproof once you have learned to rejoice in hardship. Once you learn to embrace suffering, nothing can touch you. Nothing. You know, it's no coincidence that the church in Smyrna is one of the only to have remained after 2,000 years. It suffers and remains faithful to this day. Suffering is one of God's ordained means for the growth of his church. He brought salvation to the world through Christ, our suffering Savior, and he now spreads salvation in the world through Christians as suffering saints. What Nipporipkin found by traveling and speaking with suffering believers around the world is that the stronger the persecution, the more significant the spiritual vitality of the believers. Think about this. For us as believers, this world is the closest we will get to hell. It is a testing ground of our faith in Jesus. And for people who have not made a decision to follow Christ, this life is the closest they will get to experiencing heaven. It's not ironic that an unbeliever's paradise is our hell. 
In China, the security police, they regularly harass a believer who owns a property where a house church meets. The police say, you've got to stop these meetings. If you do not stop these meetings, we will confiscate your house and we will throw you out into the street. Then the property owner responds, do you want my house? Do you want my farm? Well, if you do, then you need to talk to Jesus because I gave this property to him. He owns it all. Security police, of course, don't know what to make of that answer, so they will say, we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we can certainly get to you. When we take your property, you and your family will have nowhere to live. And the house church believers will declare, then we will be free to trust God for shelter, as well as our daily bread. If you keep this up, we will beat you, the persecutors will tell them. Then we will be free to trust Jesus for healing, the believers will respond. And then we will put you in pre- uh, prison, the police threaten. By now, the believer's response is almost predictable. And then we will be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives to set them free. We will be free to plant churches in prison. And if you try that, we will kill you, the frustrated authorities will vow. And with utter consistency, the house believers will reply, then we will be free to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. Our assignment as the church is not to rid the world of suffering. Our calling is to rejoice in it. Say it again. Our assignment as the church is not to rid the world of suffering. Our calling is to rejoice in it. And how do we do that? By living for that day. We will stand before King Jesus and hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You endured, you had character, and you placed your hope in me. We're going to close by singing this morning. If the musicians are here, I'm going to invite them to come. If you could stand where you're at, we're going to close by singing Faithful God. For we serve a faithful, faithful God. And our calling in return is to be faithful to him.